You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Several years ago, Colonel Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut, went viral with a video of him singing a revised version of David Bowie's Space Oddity while on board the International Space Station while playing his guitar. In a 2015 interview with Dr. Derek Muller, Colonel Hadfield talked about the complicated system that is our planet that he saw as he flew through the southern lights on the space station, a planet system which is constantly in flux. He spoke passionately about how the spa from space we can clearly see the effects of humans on Earth, of the great clouds of pollution obscuring cities such as Mexico City and Beijing of what he describes as the gray, ugly smear on the surface of the world. And he speaks of the changes he's seen, changes like in the Aral Sea, which once covered over 26,000 square miles in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and now has nearly disappeared. Starting with the 1950s Soviet irrigation project, and then continued irrigation practices and agricultural policies in the 1990s. He states, we made a conscious decision to allow the fourth biggest sea in the world to become a little stinking puddle. And he goes on to observe, we're obviously changing the climate on a global level. And then he ends with the question, who is gonna be the person who's going to change something? The psalmist in our reading today is also doing big picture reflections, not from space, but with their feet planted firmly on the earth, looking up to the stars and asking the question, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, that more of mortals that you care for them? The psalmist goes on to describe humanity's place in the world a little less than the gods, made to rule over the work of God's hands with all things under their feet. The sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea. Traditionally, these verses have been used as seen as a description of human mastery over the created order. Origen, an early church father from the second and third centuries, espoused this view that the creator, quote, has made everything to serve the rational being and his natural intelligence, end quote. To serve the rational being and his natural intelligence. Thomas Aquinas, the 14th century theologian, writes that of created beings, only the intellectual creature has the, quote, 
essential character of a principal agent, end quote. By contrast, non-intelligent creatures have the, quote, formal character of an instrument, which is a fancy philosophical way of saying that humans are autonomous actors in the world and all other creatures exist to be useful to humans. Martin Luther in the 16th century wrote about humans eating meat and argued that the dominion of humanity is greater after leaving the Garden of Eden. For humans were given authority like that of a, quote, tyrant who has absolute power over life and death. This human-centric view of domination continued in most of Western thought. Rene Descartes in the 17th century put it this way, that human beings are, quote, lords and possessors of nature, end quote. But is that how we are to be as tyrants with absolute power, actors in a world in which every other living creature exists only for our use? At first reading of the psalm, it seems that way. You've made them a little less than the gods. With glory and grandeur, you have created them. You make them rule over the work of your hands and all things you set under their feet. Humans are described in the psalm as divine, with divine royal qualities, as a viceroy exercising authority on behalf of a distant ruler, or as a deputy governor acting in God's name over the world. With all other creatures under their rule, all domesticated and wild living things. Our reading from Genesis 1 seems to agree. After all, humans are the last to be created, the pinnacle of creation, made in the image of God, both male and female, and then blessed by God to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and conquer it. And to hold sway, hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and every beast that crawls upon the earth. When passages like these are read in isolation, the results are destructive. We see the effects throughout history. Consider the movement of white settlers across the Americas. In 1452, Pope Nicholas V wrote in a papal bull authorizing the king of Portugal to, quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors, the kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to his and their use and profit. It's a long quote. But in other words, indigenous peoples were less than fully human. And because of the specific permission of the church, they were to be ruled over by Christian explorers and settlers. 
1823, the Christian doctrine of discovery was then written into U.S. law in the Supreme Court case Johnson versus McIntosh. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that, quote, the Christian nations had assumed ultimate dominion over the lands of America. The unanimous decision essentially stripped indigenous people, heathens, of their rights to the land, declaring the territories on which they had lived for generations to be, quote, unoccupied lands, rightly belonging to the Christian occupiers. Now follow that story through to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. White families moved into previously indigenous lands, largely through the giveaway acts of the Homestead Acts of 1904 and 1909. And the great influx of those settlers removed per prairie perennial grass, whose long roots stretched eight to 14 feet long and had anchored the soil down for generations. And they replaced that prairie grass with annual crops whose roots could not support the land from drought. And the rich topsoil held together by the roots of the prairie grass were now blown away across the country, reaching New York City and Washington, D.C., affecting 100 million acres. Those early settlers would have done well to have heeded the instructions of the first century Roman poet Virgil, who wrote, quote, before we plow an unfamiliar patch, it is well to be informed about the winds, about the variations in the sky, the native traits and the habits of the place, what each locale permits and what it denies, end quote. Virgil was advocating for a tempered dominion, we could say, but I think it's even more than that. I think Virgil is encouraging humans to engage in an extended conversation with the land, to listen and learn from what the place has to teach us, to work in concert with, not against the landscape in which we live. Dominion is not the only option presented in scripture. Remember, in the second creation story found in Genesis 2, the human being is created first, and afterward the earth is populated. Scripture reads, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. To till it and keep it. Rather a different tone than the language of dominion, there's still the idea that the land is open to utilization by human beings. But we can hear in that second story of creation, I think, a sense of stewardship taking the lead over dominion. God is imagined as a gardener, and human beings are God's gardening staff, so to speak, which leads us, I hope, to the question, how does God garden? We may look to God's example. God creates and calls it good. There is order and there is still wildness. After all, remember that the sea creatures flourish in this world, still a little bit on the wild side. God gardens without exploitation, with a goal of wholeness and well-being. For the final thing that God does in the first creation story, he establishes Sabbath, a rest for all created things. Sabbath becomes the pinnacle of creation. 
it embraces a sense of balance in everything. In other words, God the gardener creates a place for the mutual habitation of God and for humankind and for all the creatures, both domesticated and, uh, and wild. So if we take this image of God as gardener commissioning human beings to join him in the role of caring for the earth, we can return to these passages which have been used for dominion over the earth and look at them through a different lens. As the scholar James May writes, in the vision of the psalm, Psalm 8, civilization is meant to be a vast project of stewardship. Having dominion over the earth must be redefined, using the example of God's creative process as a guide for us. And even so, I think we should enter this enterprise of stewardship with great humility, because much of the harm human beings have inflicted on the earth comes from narrow good intentions. Industrial farming began with the altruistic vision of feeding the world. The trouble comes when we're not paying attention to the long-term consequences of our actions. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Victorian poet and priest, once watched a stand of trees being cut down and recorded the incident in his poem entitled Benzie Poplars, saying of nature, quote, even where we mean to mend her, we end her. We created bottled water for convenience, didn't we? For hydration and sanitation, and of course, with a very unhealthy dose of American consumerism. Globally now, human beings buy a million plastic bottles per minute. 91% of all plastic manufactured is not recycled, and the plastic in disposable water bottles takes 400 years to naturally decompose. Our ability to harm creation with unintended consequences has been disastrous. Wendell Berry writes, quote, we have lived our lives by the assumption that what has been good for us would be good for the world. And we have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and learn what is good for it." End quote. It seems to me we as the human race have failed at having dominion over the earth. And we have failed miserably at being good stewards of the earth. So we must commit ourselves to the work of sustaining the earth. What the theologian Richard Bachman calls the need to rediscover the community of creation. So that as humans, we might find our place alongside rather than separate from our fellow creatures. So how do we do that? How do we make that shift in our minds? I think as Christians, first, we start with prayer and the fullness of prayer with thanksgiving and gratitude, yes, but with the more difficult prayers of repentance and lament. And eventually with the openness to the direction of spirit in our lives. 
And secondly, we need to practice paying attention to the landscapes on which we live, the watershed that is beneath our feet, and to what we throw away. All those single-use items we consume and discard, the disposable items we buy and throw away. What if this week is an act of awareness and repentance we kept and counted? All of the one-use items we use, the non-biodegradable packaging of the products we buy and consume. Change begins with taking stock with an honest accounting of our situation. And third, we can practice listening to the voices of those who have been calling us back to a balanced relationship with the land, particularly to indigenous voices, to those working on sustainability, to people of faith working for environmental justice and creation care. And fourth, from prayer, from honest reflection, and listening to the wisdom of alternative ways of understanding our relationship with creation, we can begin to form new habits, faithful practices of becoming better partners in creation, of being God's gardeners in the world. Recently, I saw a news report about a Richmond, Kentucky man, Curtis Eads. He's also known as Creek Runner. And in the past two years, Eads, along with a small team of volunteers, has picked up more than 15,000 pounds of trash in local creeks. The Creek Runner has also started creating art from the trash that he recovers in waterways. And fifth, we need to communicate our values to our neighbors, in our workplaces, to our officials from local governments all the way up through state and federal representatives and communicate our values and to the companies whose goods and services we purchase. One of my dear friends and colleagues is David Bell, who started his ministry in Washington at the Yakima Mission about the same time I started serving a church in Washington State. And over the years, he and I have often talked about landscapes, about our own personal relationships to the lands on which we live. David grew up on a ranch in Texas. He lived in California before moving to central Washington and out to White Swan on the Yakima Nation. And I'm one generation removed from a farm in Illinois, 20 years living in Washington, and now just one year here back in Kentucky. David and I would long talk about how to restore our connections to the land, how to do that in our worship services, in our liturgies, in the very rituals which give so much meaning in our spiritual lives as disciples. One dream we had was of sharing communion elements which were made from local crops. So communion wine made from Washington grapes so that we could say about the wine in the cup that it was a new covenant of Christ's blood grown on the hills of central Washington, grapes from so-and-so's vineyard in the Yakima Valley. And the bread that we would break and share would be made from a local source of wheat so that we could say, this is my body bread made from flour in Grant County from so-and-so's farm. That dream of ours 
was never fully realized. But I've not given up on it. I mean, think about it. How would that change us? How would we view the land differently? Would we understand our relationship to creation in a new way? What if the cup we share was made from grapes grown in Flemingsburg County? Or the bread was made from wheat grown in Mason County and ground in Scott County? Rather than just juice from Welch's and wafers from who knows where. I confess, I don't know where the wheat, the bread I will break for our communion today was grown. But I do know that it was ground in Scott County by Weissenberger Mills. And that's a start, I think. What if every Sunday as we gathered around Christ's table to share manna from heaven, we could name the places where wheat and grapes were tended and harvested? What if we knew what hands had prepared those gifts for us, and we acknowledged them with gratitude each time we broke bread? The body of Christ made real, I think. Not just in any drink or in any food, but in the fruits of this landscape from the earth connected to people who live in places near to us and given to us to share with one another. It's a dream, I know, and perhaps it's a small thing, but it might be a way to start a new way of seeing the world and our place in it. Will it save the planet? Not likely. But will it change us? With God's grace, I hope so. Because when we understand our calling to be of the earth, not in some abstract sense, but here in this place which sustains us. When we see ourselves as caretakers of the land and water, not on any land or water, but this land and these waters. When we know ourselves to be God's gardening staff, tending to the goodness and the flourishing of the earth, where we stand, we will know for the first time who we are, and we will see that it is good. Shalom, my friends. Shalom. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.